Welcome to this archived LDN Research Trust conference presentation. We hope you enjoy it. So in many neuroinflammatory disorders, it's not just pain. There's autonomic disorders, emotional disorders, and movement disorders. Different parts of the nervous system are malfunctioning, and the underlying cause is the inflammatory process. So I interact with a um, physician at Brown University, I'm sorry, there we go, uh, Pradeep Chopra, who's spoken at LDN conferences in the past. We work on a disease called complex regional pain syndrome. It's a neuroautoimmune disorder. It's one of the most uh, painful disorders known to medicine. These are two cases from a paper we published together, Pradeep's patients, both given low-dose naltrexone. In the upper case, a 48-year-old veteran is having a CRPS flare, and two weeks after the flare, the leg is becoming ulcerated. These ulcers don't heal. They become gangrenous, often leading to amputation. Even that doesn't stop the progression of it. It was very likely this man would have died within a year. He was placed on oral LDN, and six months later, the entire uh, presentation is in remission. For the first time, he is ambulatory without a cane. A lower panel 14-year-old girl who has a collagen disorder, Erlos-Danlos syndrome, has CRPS <coughs> as a co-condition. Her leg is locked in a fixed posture, which is called a fixed dystonia. The ankle is dislocated. It's a very dangerous situation because of the anoxia. So to prevent having to amputate this leg, they were having to do a generalized uh, a surgery under general anesthesia to put cadaver ligaments in a pin. This is very dangerous for a CRPS patient because this could cause the, the inflammation to spread through the entire nervous system. Again, LDN was given perioperatively. Remarkably, after she came out of the cast three months later, you see over there on the right, she was symptomatically free. Both of these cases show spectacular outcomes, totally unexpected given the severity of the symptoms. So how do we, as LDN, fit into this? Today I'll talk to you about several areas. One, the loss of the pain gate, the sensory gates to the spinal cord. The second, how inflammation can spread into the brain through axonal tracts spreading into subcortical regions like the thalamus, and how these types of behaviors are augmented in neuroautoimmune disorders where autoantibodies are in play. So we're dealing with is a set of interlocking pathologies that involve injured nerves and activated glia, microglia and reactive astrocytes. So LDN offers a therapeutic option to arrest the assembly of a pathological state using these cellular molecular elements. And in some cases, as we've seen, it can actually lead to a remission of these symptoms. This is a patient suffering from a nerve injury. He's a soldier. And you can see by his affect, extreme pain. This is known as allodynia. The lightest touch, even a breath of air on his skin, is sensed like a burning match or a stabbing knife. So what's going on? If you trace the nerve back into the spinal cord, his upper thorax, things are taking place at the level of the cell membrane. 
the ion gradients are changing. So nervous system runs on four batteries, a sodium battery, potassium battery, calcium battery, and a chloride battery. For so long, we ignored the importance of chloride. It is the most labile of all of the batteries. In an inflamed state, the, the chloride battery is depleted. And what this leads to is a loss of the pain-gating activity. It's as if this battery was actually inverted. And functionally, what this leads to is a change in the sensory gate. Normally, the GABAergic synapses, it's a chloride-dependent current, is generated there as the nerve impulse tries to make it to the projection neuron, which will send impulses to the brain. It receives an inhibitory signal. That's the reason you can press on yourself and you don't feel extraordinary pain. But when you have this synaptic conversion because of the change in the chloride battery, the logic of that switch changes. Instead of a block, it's a go signal. So now the lightest touch is swept through and it generates the most extreme sense of pain. So these types of extreme types of pain were once thought to be psychogenic. It didn't make sense to neurologists. Now, most neurologists understand that the collapse of the chloride gradient, the collapse of this chloride battery, is central to the dysfunctions associated with neuroinflammation. How does this pertain to movement disorders? Injuries to nerves can produce fixed postures. This has been known since the Civil War. But now we have an experimental model, thanks to Anne Louise Oaklander at Harvard. Using a rat, you can take a needle and pass it through the tibial nerve. Within a few days, the rat will develop a fixed posture, similar to this woman who had a vein stripping and developed CRPS plus the fixed dystonia. In a separate type of experiment, if you do a ligation of a nerve, and you section the spinal cord afterwards, you'll see that microglia, these blue dots, have become activated and they're aggregating around where the projected neurons terminate in the dorsal horn. You'll also notice an aggregation here in the ventral horn. These are where the motor neurons emanate from the spinal cord. So large fiber injury correlates with an activation of microglia in the ventral horn. So Microglial activation can be multifocal and somatotopic, meaning you injure a specific site in the periphery, it maps to specific sites in the cord. In my online presentation, you can look at a movie of what happens at the cellular level. This is work by my colleague Mike Daly at the University of Iowa and his students. What this shows is a brain slice with fluorescently labeled microglia. He uses a laser beam to injure the brain slice in a very narrow line between those white arrows. In the movie, what you would see is the neighboring microglia rapidly change their morphologies. They extend pseudopodia towards the injured site. What they're reacting to is a chemical signal, ATP. The same molecule that drives all of our cellular energy processes inside the cell, as soon as it leaves the cell and it goes into the extracellular compartment, it becomes part of a 999 emergency signaling system. It's the first nine. And it lands on ATP receptors on the microglial surface. And that drives epigenetic changes 
that kick them into action and drives them into the neuroprotective uh, states. In 2001, Richard Bonatti in London and his colleagues published a very seminal paper on people who have chronic neuropathic pain resulting from a peripheral nerve injury, such as amputation or plexus injury. And what we know is that there's inflammation established at this first-ordered synapse. But Bonatti's colleagues pioneered the ability to peer into the brain using positron electron tomography to image activated microglia within the brain. In all of these cases, activated microglia appeared on the contralateral opposite side. And that's following the course of the axons in the second order projection neuron. That is a very significant result because it follows an anatomical course, which we know is there, resulting in the activation of microglia in the sensory part of the thalamus. So when the doctors say the pain is all in your head, they're partially correct. There's inflammation producing neuropathic pain, chronic pain that's very difficult to treat. But there's also pain being generated here. A better way to view this is that this is a neuroinflammatory tract. There's injury, inflammation, and secondary inflammation, which then results in general disinhibition and disorder throughout the neuroaxis. So what does the thalamus do? There's two of them. They're about the size of an egg. So here's just one. And if you look at a brainstem, it sits on top, these two. They're like a cell phone relay center. And you can see in this diagram how an individual thalamus communicates to one hemisphere of the brain. The frontal lobes the sensory nucleus, the motor nucleus, and this is where visual system is, is integrated. If you have inflammation in any one of these sites, you should expect disinhibition and malfunctioning, emotional disorders, neuropathic pain, movement disorders, including dystonias, and hallucinations. Could that all happen in a given individual? I encourage you all to read a book, it's a bestseller, and it's called Brain on Fire. It's a story of a reporter in New York who developed a neuroautoantibody to an NMDA glutamate receptor. Within a month, she went from having sensory uh, disturbances, paranoia, delusions, absence seizures, clonic seizures, and then catatonia. They eventually identified it as a neuroautoantibody, and they saved her life by cleansing her blood with intravenous aminoglobulin. And now, being maintained on prednisone, she's made a full recovery. Without these types of therapies, it's almost certain she would have died. So these small molecular demons, my term that I use to explain it, can unbalance the entire system by producing amplified neuroinflammation throughout the neuroaxis. Now that we have a molecular and cellular outline of what's going on, we need to then further understand sort of the, the cellular mechanics of what's happening to generate movement disorders. So Seton-Ham Korea is a good stereotyped example of this. This is the brain of a, a, a child with Seton-Ham's Korea, which is sequelae to a streptococcal throat infection. So these hyperintense regions in the subcortical regions, the caudate, the putamen, and the thalamus, 
are not bacteria getting into the brain, it's autoantibodies getting into the brain. So what's happened, the child has mobilized the immune response, generated auto, uh, antibodies to fight off the strep, but some of those antibodies code and interact with neuroantigens and produce chronic inflammation. Phenotypically, we see choreic movements, dystonias, tics, emotional disturbances. This makes sense because of these amplifiers and relay stations being inflamed. So this last year, a friend of mine who is a pediatric movement disorder specialist asked me to help a colleague of his uh, who had developed a rare hemidystonia. Her whole left side of her body was locked up. There's only about 100 cases of these in the clinical literature. 50% of those involve some type of defect or disturbance in the contralateral thalamus. She was put on clonazepam, a benzodiazepine. It suppressed part of her symptoms, but she kept falling over. The neurologist said, can you help her? And I had been dialoguing with him about low-dose naltrexone. So after about a month of discussion with her neurologist, a movement disorder specialist, they prescribed low-dose naltrexone. The first morning she woke up after the single dose, nine o'clock the previous night, she, she woke up with restorative sleep for the first time in a year. Day three, the hemidystonia was in remission. And there's nothing like this in the clinical literature. She then tapered off of the clonazepam, made very rapid progress through uh, this tapering period, but she was spasming while she was exercising. And I suspected what was going on. I thought she might be having a hypercapnic event. Turns out bicarbonate flows to the same channels as chloride channels. So I went over to her house and had her breathe into a plastic bag. And within 30 seconds, her arm locked up. That's this. Then I had her hyperventilate and within 30 seconds she became fluid again. So this type of intermittency is again what movement disorder specialists might say is psychogenic, and yet it's provoked by a hypercapnic challenge. When you have an inflamed system and the neurons are highly depolarized, bicarbonate becomes a significant current through these GABAergic uh, ion channels. So what I think maybe going on in her system is that she has um, an artery or some type of vascular injury in her right motor thalamus. And that, that inflammation may be setting off waves of electrical activity, which we now know to be, be able to be carried through the thalamus. Now back to complex regional pain syndrome. 25% of CRPS patients have fixed dystonias. There is no other autoimmune disorder where this type of presentation takes place. We now know what these autoantibodies code for, what they bind to. The beta-2 adrenergic receptor, the, uh, the muscarinic 2 acetylcholine receptor, and in long-standing CRPS patients, it's the alpha-1 adrenergic receptor. Very specific, and as Dr. Schwartzbach was saying, we now can look at these molecular markers and see that there's specificity. There are molecular tests that can indicate, correlate with the type of intensity and, and presentation of these syndromes. So what happens when you look into the brain 
of somebody with CRPS. These are normal, as a normal individual, and then this is a PET scan using a probe for activated microglia. You see inflamed basal ganglia, thalami, and multifocal inflammation through the cortex. So we have is an autoimmune encephalitis. That's the same condition that was diagnosed here. And yet, it's a different autoantibody. This was an anti-NMDA receptor antibody. That's a glutamate receptor. These people are suffering from receptors of adrenaline and acetylcholine, but those receptors are widespread, not just in glia neurons, endothelial cells, blood cells, even uh, uh, you know, many of the visceral tissues. So as I mentioned, the pain and dysfunction of these patients is severe. If this is work of Candy McCabe in Bath, and they've asked a patient to diagram their body. And you can see that the affected limb, the hand, is enlarged. If you ask the patient to close their eyes and to touch where their arm is, they say, here's the edge of my limb. And clearly, their body schema has been grossly distorted. When we look back at the MRI scans, you can see that by disinhibiting all of the processing centers, we can have a plausible, putative etiology for these types of distortions. So these twisted, fixed postures are not irreversible. They're very difficult to treat. However, if you use anti-inflammatories like ketamine infusions, this woman here, a few days after the ketamine infusion, she could become fluid again. So if you attenuate the inflammation, you can get a restoration of function. And that's what we had seen with LDN. So as a cellular biophysicist, I always am using sort of a Google Earth type perspective. I look at the symptom presentation and then I'm trying to zero in at the cellular level and look at the cellular sociology of what's going on. So in an asymptomatic CRPS patient, one can imagine these autoantibodies circulating through capillaries, but unable to interact with the neurons because of a blood-brain barrier. But upon injury or stress, something that causes the blood-brain barrier to be compromised, then the autoantibodies and activated leukocytes can extravasate, leave the blood system, and enter the place where the neurons and glia are located. With that, changes in the chloride levels will take place. The batteries will reverse. This, what this will do is that it make these things hyper, hyper excitable. And so a pain signal, which would be sent in a graded fashion, now is amplified to the maximum extent. So what are some of the other players that we now know? I mentioned ATP, extracellular ATP is the mnemonic that we used to describe that. The other player, which I refer as the Darth Vader of cytokines, is TNF-alpha, because it's the upstream player in a whole set of inflammatory cascades. So microglia and, ast and reactive astrocytes are in an almost infinite do loop of, of talking to each other using these two players. So how do we treat patients like this? 
if you have a person who has these autoantibodies and you injure them, we know in CRPS that it can flare throughout the entire body. And this is work done in Mike Salter's lab in Toronto. A dye, Evans Blue, was injected into the bloodstream of a rat, and then a peripheral nerve injury was created, and at that point, throughout the spinal cord and the brain stem, the blood-brain barrier opened, and the dye crossed from the blood into the nervous system. The above is a control. Same type of Evans Blue, but no peripheral nerve injury. So this is telling us something very important at the cellular level, something that we don't quite understand yet. A peripheral nerve injury is affecting the entire neuraxis, and it allows a portal, multiple spots for these players to enter places where they could ignite focal neural inflammation. So low-dose naltrexone, we know, inhibits many of the toll-like receptors. And so it's part of a therapeutic uh, approach. But there are other molecular players, extracellular ATP and TNF. I believe that what we will see is in the future, LDN will need to be combined with other therapies like ketamine hyperbaric oxygen, or blockers to the ATP receptors, which are known as purine receptors. And then drugs like etanercept, Enbrel, can be used potentially to scavenge the TNF. So we need to be creative. And one of the things I think is so powerful about this meeting is the out-of-the-box thinking that takes place here. So back to scanning back in a Google Earth perspective from the cellular molecular level, all of these agents can interact with cellular players to produce a condition which we call neuroinflammation. Not all neuroinflammatory lesions are the same. Drugs, toxins, stress, autoantibodies lead to the activation of many players infiltrating leukocytes and monocytes we need to be aware that as these cells germinate from the bone marrow, circulate through the, certain, the, the blood system, they're being conditioned by molecules that they encounter. We now have evidence that these monocytes can infiltrate into the in, in injured CNS and differentiate into microglia. Okay. So in conclusion, we know that neuroinflammation can spread through the neuroaxis through axonal projections. This shouldn't be a surprise to neuroscientists because for decades we've been using viruses and fluorescent tracers injected into certain parts of the nervous system and we can see anterior grade or retrograde transport of these injected agents. It should be no surprise that cytokines and, and autoimmune endosomes could be transported along axonal tracks to ignite uh, neuroinflammation in distant sites. So the mystery of how a peripheral nerve injury could cause amplified pain here, but disturbances up here has a logical explanation. So autoantibodies can certainly ignite neuroinflammation, but they need to extravasate, get out of the blood system to get to those sites of interaction. Peripheral nerve injury, something circulating in the blood, seems to be able to do that. Fixed dystonic postures can arise 
in certain neuroinflammatory disorders. It's not just CRPS. If you'll look at a movement disorder of question, go to PubMed and ask autoantibodies Tourette's, autoantibodies hemidystonia. You'll see a plethora of new publications showing that autoantibodies can produce these types of disorders. And as Dr. Schwarzbach was telling us, many of these autoantibodies are generated by antecedent infectious agents. And if you look at a virus or bacterium, it's covered with foreign antigens. And so it's not surprising that constant chronic infection could ignite the presence of these. Fortunately, some of these disorders are responsive to LDN. How does this change our views? Well, Charcot, considered to be the progenitor of modern neurology, said in 1890, hysteria has its laws, its determination, precisely like a nervous ailment with a material lesion. Its anatomical lesion still eludes our means of investigation. He viewed the, fun the dynamics uh, taking place in this woman who was undergoing a fixed dystonic storm in response to just pressure on her body as a case of hysteria major. These types of reactions occur in people who have neuroautoimmune disorders. Fibromyalgia have trigger points. They also have autoantibodies to muscle proteins. So we now have a much broader integrated view corresponds to what Charcot was thinking of a functional disorder, of a physiologic uh, or biochemical uh, nature. But we now know that these are epigenetic events that involve you know, rapid changes in the genome. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to this presentation. All past conference presentations can be found on our website, www.lvn.org. LDN Research Trust dot org.